Now you have in chapter 26 here the first fruits. And this is Thanksgiving, by the way. We probably should have had this chapter a long time ago. But this is the first Thanksgiving, actually. People ask about where did Thanksgiving come from. Well, it came from the Bible, but whereabouts in the Bible? Let me read some of this here. Now, this is chapter 26 of Deuteronomy, verse 1. It shall be when thou art come in unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, and possessest it, and dwellest therein, that thou shalt take of the first of all the fruit of the earth, which thou shalt bring of thy land, that the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall put it in a basket, and shall go unto the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name, and thou shalt go unto the priests that shall be in those days, and say unto him, I profess this day unto the Lord thy God that I am come unto the country which the Lord sware unto our fathers for to give us, and the priest shall take the basket out of thine hand, set it down before the altar of the Lord thy God. And thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, A Syrian, ready to perish, was my father, who went down into Egypt, and sojourned there with a few, and became there a nation great, mighty, and populous. And then he recounts the history of these people. And then he makes this as an offering unto God, a thanksgiving offering to God. But there are two things here that I'd have you note in this chapter. One is his confession is, a Syrian ready to perish was my father. What was Abraham? Was Abraham an Israelite? No, he actually was not. What about Isaac? Well, he was not either. What about Jacob? Actually, he was not. What were they? The crowd that went down into Egypt, they were Assyrian. Wedded for perish was my father. That's what Abraham was. He came from the other side of the river, a Hebrew, which means he came from the other side. And he was Assyrian as to nationality. That is the thing. You see, you could no more say that Abraham, he's no more an Israelite than he could be called an Ishmaelite. Because after all, he was the father of Ishmael also. But these are nations that came from him. Makes this extremely interesting. Now, friends, we've come to one of the most vital sections of the book of Deuteronomy, and it's another major section, by the way. We have come to that that regards the future, and it has to do with not only the nation Israel, but it has to do with that land over there, regarding their future in the land. And that is the section we're in now, from chapter 27 through chapter 30. And this is a very vital section. In it we have the so-called Palestinian covenant that God made with the nation Israel. And this is what we'll be looking at when we get to the 30th chapter. Now, those of you that have my notes, note that I give the 29th chapter and the 30th chapter down through verse 10 
as the Palestinian covenant. And you will find that others give all of chapter 29 and 30. The fact of the matter is, Dr. Louis Perry Schaefer, formerly president of Dallas Seminary, gives chapters 28 through 30. And I think that the Schofield Reference Bible gives the 29th chapter as the introduction to the Palestinian covenant, and then the 30th chapter down through verse 10 as the covenant itself. Now, I think that since we've entered this section here, and we'll be here, I'm sure, a couple of days, probably, first of all, that we ought to say something about a covenant. That word has already occurred several times, and there are different kinds of covenants. You'll find out that men make covenants, that is, individuals, one with another. They're mentioned in the Bible. Then there are nations that make covenants, and some of them are mentioned in the Bible. Then there are covenants which God made with his people in the Old Testament and made with humanity. At the very beginning, you have what is known as the Adamic covenant. You have the Noadic covenant. You have the Abrahamic covenant. You have the Mosaic covenant. And now we've come to the Palestinian covenant. Now, these covenants that God makes are divided into two different classifications, conditional covenants and the other unconditional covenants. Or else, we might say, eternal covenants are temporary covenants. A temporary covenant is a conditional covenant. And then an eternal covenant Our permanent covenant is one that's unconditional. And it's well to be able to distinguish between the two. Now, we find that God made a covenant with Abraham. That's one of the unconditional covenants. God made a covenant with Moses, the Ten Commandments. They were conditional. And then God made this Palestinian covenant, and it's unconditional. And we'll be looking at that as we come to it, actually, in the 30th chapter. Now, all of this has to do with the future, and you understand that these people now are on the east bank of the Jordan River. They're preparing to enter the land. A new generation is there. The old generation will not enter. In fact, they're all dead with one exception, and that is Moses. And Moses will not enter into the land. We'll see that this book closes with a requiem to Moses. He dies. But he doesn't enter the land, but the people enter under a new leader. And this particular section has to do with their future in the land. And you have here probably some of the most remarkable prophecies that we have in the entire Word of God. You have here, beginning with chapter 27, and let me begin reading here, "...and Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you this day, and it shall be on the day when ye shall pass over Jordan." 
into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, that thou shalt set thee up great stones, and plaster them with plaster. Thou shalt write upon them all the words of this law, when thou art passed over, that thou mayest go in unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, a land that floweth with milk and honey, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee. Now, they were told that when they crossed over into the land, the Ten Commandments would be put around everywhere. Now, their tenure in the land, their dwelling there, would be determined by their obedience to God. That was a conditional arrangement. But the land was given to them under no conditions whatsoever. God gave it to them, and we'll see an unconditional covenant, and they're yet to come back to that land. This is something that's very important to see in this section here. Now he says in verse 4, "...therefore it shall be, when ye be gone over Jordan, that ye shall set up these stones which I command you this day in Mount Ebal, and thou shalt plaster them with plaster." And there shalt thou build an altar unto the Lord thy God, an altar of stones. Thou shalt not lift up any iron tool upon them. Thou shalt build the altar of the Lord thy God of whole stones. And thou shalt offer peace offerings. Thou shalt eat there and rejoice before the Lord thy God. Thou shalt write upon the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Now, they're to enter the land on this condition, you see. And Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke unto all Israel, saying, Take heed and hearken, O Israel, this day. Thou art become the people of the Lord thy God. Now, notice this. Thou shalt therefore obey the voice of the Lord thy God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. And Moses charged the people the same day, saying, These shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people when ye are come over Jordan. And he mentions the tribes that will do the blessing. They'll go here on Mount Gerizim. And then those that are to have the curses, they go over to Mount Ebal. Now, if you've ever been in that land, it's right in that area where the Samaritan woman was at the well. That well is there. And also Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are there today. And it's in Arab hands, although it's presently helped by the nation Israel. But that's an Arab area entirely, even to this day. And they were to put on one mountain, that is Gerizim, the blessings, and on Mount Ebal the curses. Now you have the curses given. In other words, they go into the land, their tenure there is on a condition. They are just, shall I say, tenants, and they are to pay rent. That is, that rent is obedience unto God. But actually, they're more than tenants. God's given them the land as the eternal possession. And when a generation will not obey God, they'll be put out of the land, but the land will remain theirs. That's the reason that that piece of real estate is the most sensitive spot 
on top side of this globe today. And it's the belief of a great many that right now a world war could be triggered by what takes place in that land. And certainly that is true. Now, you have here 12 curses given. And I'm not going into detail here about them. Verse 15, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image. And now you see this has to do with the Ten Commandments. And then verse 16, Cursed be he that setteth light by his father his mother. And then you come down to chapter 28. I'm not going through, by the way, all these 12 curses that are here. They all relate to the Ten Commandments. Now will you notice chapter 28, and I'm reading now, "...and it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God." Now, their blessing in the land was determined by their obedience unto God. You notice that here. This great big if, he started out by saying to them here at the beginning, "...and it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently." And that's a great big if. This is a conditional part of the covenant that they are going to be blessed only as they obey God. Then you have the blessings given here. Blessed shalt thou be in the city. Blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body. Blessed shall be thy basket. Blessed shall be when thou comest in. Blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. Now, as you read this here, you say, well, look, there are twelve curses pronounced, but only about five blessings. What goes here? Well, I think that you have about six blessings, by the way, that are mentioned here, but that's only half of the curses that are mentioned. And you say, what goes here? Well, do you want to pick up the rest of the blessings? When our Lord stood on the mount and gave the so-called Sermon on the Mount, he was standing on the mountain, and how did he begin it? Blessed is the man. So you have the rest of the Beatitudes there. Our Lord, when he gave those and began that message like that, it made the instructed Israelite listen. He was hearing the blessings that would come to them even after their long checkered history of when they'd even been into captivity at that time already twice. And they were yet to go into captivity, be scattered throughout the earth again at that particular time. Now you have here, he comes back and mentions these curses, and it all rests upon this matter of an if. Verse 15, "...but it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses 
shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Notice again, verse 15, it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. If, if, if. This is the conditional part on which they're to enter the land. Then we have here one of the most remarkable passages of Scripture. It gives their history pre-written in the land. Now, what you have here, that there are three prophecies that concern these people, that they're to be regathered and brought back into that land. They will be restored three times, and they are to be dispossessed three times. Now, let me call your attention to that fact. You have a reference to this first, I guess it's back in about the 15th chapter of the book of Genesis, where God says to Abraham that your offspring, they're going down into Egypt. And they went down into Egypt for 430 years. But that they would come out of that. They would return from that land and come into the land. And we are following him here in that. Now, that part has been fulfilled. They were to be put out of the land. They were returned to the land. We are seeing that here in Deuteronomy. They're ready now to enter. And when we go into the book of Joshua, we'll see them enter the land, and we'll see them settled in the land in the book of Judges. Now, that is something that has been literally fulfilled. Then you have the second time that they're to be put out of the land. And we have that mentioned here. We are told, and I'll drop down now here in chapter 28. This is a very remarkable chapter. Verse 36 says, "...the Lord shall bring thee and thy king, which thou shalt set over thee, unto a nation which neither thou nor thy fathers have known. And there shalt thou serve other gods wood and stone. Now, that was the Babylonian captivity. It is a matter of record, a matter of history. We have the record. We'll see it a little later on. And we'll see that, the fact they were carried into captivity. And Jeremiah prophesied concerning it. He had a great deal to say about it. We find that the historical record is given in both Kings and Chronicles that they went into Babylonian captivity. fact of the matter is that Zedekiah, the last king, his eyes were put out. Children were slain before him, then his eyes were put out. Listen to verse 32 here, which describes that. And all of this is prophecy, you must remember says, Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto another people, and thine eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all the day long, and there shall be no might in thine hand. And he was helplessly carried into Babylonian captivity blind. How literal it was fulfilled. Why? Because of their disobedience. God says you go into the land. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you do not obey, you'll be put out of that land. Now, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel have to do with their return. That is, 
with their experience in the Babylonian captivity, and then their return. And then the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi tell of their return back to that land. So that this is the second prophecy concerning their being driven out of the land because of disobedience, but that they would return. Now, that has been literally fulfilled. Then the third one, and that has to do with Rome. And notice how it is described here prophetically. Verse 48, "...therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee in hunger, and in thirst, and in nakedness, and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he have destroyed thee." And I have a set of books right up above me here. In my study, it's two volumes of Flavius Josephus. He tells about the coming of the Romans, first under Titus. They put the yoke of iron. Rome's known as the Iron Kingdom. And also, the Lord shall bring a nation against thee from afar, from the end of the earth. They came all the way from the west, you know. As swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand. You see, that was a language that was not an Oriental language at all. Today, our English is based on the Latin and the European languages. But the nation Israel was a language that had to do with Asia and with Africa, and was altogether different. And God says they'll speak a tongue that we won't understand it, but they had on their standards the eagle. And I'm of the opinion that many an instructed Israelite, when they looked over the battlements of the walls and saw the standards of Titus there with the eagles on it, they said, this is it. Now it says in verse 52, "...he shall besiege thee in all thy gates until thy high and fence walls come down, wherein thou trustest throughout all thy land. And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates throughout all thy land, which the Lord thy God hath given thee." And thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters, which the Lord thy God hath given thee in the siege and in the straitness wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee. And in these two volumes I've referred to up above me here of Josephus, it tells about how mothers were forced to give up their babies and they were eaten. The flesh of babies were eaten. And people died, and the corpse collected inside the city, and they had to throw them over the wall. May I say to you that this is the thing that was literally fulfilled. Now they were scattered throughout the world. The interesting thing is, they've never returned from that captivity. That has not yet been fulfilled. There are three prophecies of dispossessions. There are three prophecies that they will return. They have returned twice. They have not returned the third time. Now, here you have six prophecies, five of them literally fulfilled. What do you think about the sixth one? Well, I don't know what you think. I'll tell you what I think. I think it'll be literally fulfilled. It's yet to come in the future. 
And we are given that here because their continued disobedience, which now has been over a long period of time, that God deals with that here. And you will find that he will bring upon them certain diseases. I don't want to go into that because this is something that is rather personal and has to do with the race, and certainly they've been characterized by certain diseases. Now, verse 63, "...shall come to pass, as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to naught, and ye shall be plucked from off the land whether thou goest to possess it." In other words, God says, "...I'll take you out of that land. And the Lord shall scatter thee among all people from the one end of the earth even unto the other." And thou, thou shalt serve other gods, which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. And among these nations shalt thou find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest. But the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart, and failing of eyes, sorrow of mind. And thou shalt fear day and night, and shalt have none assurance of thy life. May I say, this has been literally fulfilled, friends. In fact, right now, one group of people that are in grave danger are these people. Prophecy being literally fulfilled. Now, in chapters 29 and 30, you have what in Deuteronomy can be considered the Palestinian covenant. Dr. Chafer takes chapters 28 through 30 as the covenant, and the Schofield Reference Bible begins with chapter 29 and considers chapter 29 the introduction and then takes it through the 30th chapter, verse 10. Now, in my notes, I take chapters 29 and through the 10 verses of chapter 30 as being the covenant. But very candidly, the covenant proper is chapter 30, the first ten verses. But now this that is preliminary is very important, by the way, and the covenant is mentioned here in chapter 29. Now let me begin reading here. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. Now, the covenant in Horeb was the Ten Commandments, of course, what we know as the Mosaic Law. Now, the covenant here that he's going to make with them relates to the land, and it's called the Palestinian Covenant. And it's right before they enter into the land. Now, verse 2, Moses called unto all Israel and said unto them, Ye have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, unto Pharaoh, and unto all his servants, and unto all his land. Most of these people he's speaking to, of course, were children at the time. Some of them, I'm sure, teenagers, but they had been witness of these things. Now, verse 3, The great temptations which thine eyes have seen, the signs and those great miracles... Yet the Lord hath not given you a heart to perceive, and eyes to see, and ears to hear unto this day. Isaiah had a great deal to say about that, and you'll find Paul over in the 11th chapter 
of the epistle to the Romans, verse 8. He says, "...according as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day." Now, does it mean that God just turns them off? No, it means this, they're already off. God has to turn us on. And that is the place where we need to recognize that until God opens the eyes and the ears of men and women, they cannot hear the gospel. Now, don't misunderstand me. They can hear the words, but they cannot hear the gospel with understanding. I have had called to my attention an article. In fact, it's been sent to me from a friend and listener in Texas that appeared in a magazine back there that they put in the newspaper. And it has to do with a radio station that's across the border in Texas. And the writer of the article there speaks of the fact that it's a bunch of religious racketeers that are on the station. And then he puts me on the station and attempts to tell about my program there. And I'm of the opinion, of course, we're not even on that station. And I can't understand why a writer would be so inaccurate as that. But he does have a few facts, that is, that we are going through the Bible in five years. And he thinks that if you attempt to teach the Bible today, that you're running a religious racket. And my point has been, we actually have taken this up with a lawyer And our point has been, because I don't want to sue or anything like that, but it's too bad that this man can't listen to the program and see what we're trying to do. And if you listen over a period of time, but again, you feel frustrated. Suppose he did listen. He wouldn't understand. He just wouldn't be able to comprehend. He'd still, I think, come up with the... Same conclusion he has. Well, this fellow McGee that's teaching the Bible on the radio, he can't have anything but an ulterior motive in that. After all, the Bible is just being used as propaganda. He wouldn't believe it at all. But we wish he would listen in. Maybe the Spirit of God would open his eyes and his heart to see that we are presenting the Word of God today, that is effective, that reaches in and touches the hearts of many folk. Now, God says that that's what he did for those people. He just left them as they were. Why? Because they had no purpose whatsoever to turn to him. They broke down all communication with the living and true God, and God therefore just left them in that state of unbelief. Verse 5, And I have led you forty years in the wilderness, he says, and your clothes are not waxen old upon you, and thy shoe is not waxen old upon thy foot. Now, imagine walking forty years in the same pair of shoes, and they didn't wax old. And then he goes on to describe their journey that they had made through the wilderness, and that that should have opened their eyes. A great many people today say, oh, if God had only performed a miracle right before my eyes, I would believe. Well, these people saw him for 40 years, and they didn't believe. That's not 
the problem today. It's not for the want of evidence that men are unbelievers. They're unbelievers not because of the Bible. They're not unbelievers because of that which is outside. They're unbelievers because they are inside an unbeliever, and they are innately, and they're an enemy of God. They have no capacity for the things of God. What a picture God presents of the human heart, that it is desperately wicked, and none of us can actually conceive of how terrible it really is, and that the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And Paul wrote that after God had tested these people for about 1,200 to 1,500 years with the law. He says, "...so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God." What a picture of humanity. Now, that is the history that he gives here, which is preliminary to the covenant now. And so we have him giving here what will ultimately happen in that land before he gives the covenant in which he makes it clear that he intends to bring them back into that land and bless them and the land. The land and the people go together. Actually, the whole mosaic system is geared for that land, not only for the people, but for that land that's important to see. Now, this is the condition of the land as it is today. And friends, here's one of the most remarkable prophecies that you probably have ever seen in Scripture. The Mount of Olives, even in our Lord's day, was covered with trees. It was a regular wooded area. It was the enemies that came in there, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, that cut out all the timber. Here in Southern California, where I live in Pasadena, right up against the mountains, a friend told me, and a very old man, he said, when I first came as a boy to California, I hunted up in these mountains. They were all covered with trees. Friends, they're bare today, no trees at all. Well, that was the way it was in that land, covered with trees, and they're gone today. The judgment of God, not only upon a people, but upon a land. Now, will you notice verse 22? So that the generation to come are your children, that shall rise up after you, and the stranger that shall come from a far land shall say when they see the plagues of that land, and the sicknesses which the Lord hath laid upon it, and that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning, that it is not sown nor beareth, nor any grass groweth therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admon's boyum, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Even all nations shall say, Wherefore hath the Lord done thus unto this land? What meaneth the heat of this great anger? Then men shall say, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they knew not and whom he had not given unto them. 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land to bring upon it all the curses that are written in this book. Now, I heard years ago the late Dr. George Gill tell about a trip that he made many years ago from Constantinople down to Baghdad by train. Actually, the train came down through Asia Minor and came down in that land. And late in the afternoon, they were leaving Jerusalem and dropping down into the Dead Sea area. And as they did, there was a very wealthy American standing out on the back vestibule of the train. And he made this statement. He said, I always heard this was the land of milk and honey. Why, I've never seen a land that is as bad as this. I've never seen anything like this. Why, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. I've never seen land like it. And Dr. Gill standing there, he says, you know, it's interesting what you've said. And he turned to this passage of Scripture. And he says, you know that the Bible says, the stranger that shall come from a far land shall say when they see the plagues of the land and the sicknesses which the Lord hath laid upon it, they're going to say, what means all of this? They'll say, wherefore hath the Lord done thus? Under this land, what meaneth the heat of this great anger? Well, what's the explanation of the land being like that? And it once was a land of milk and honey. And Dr. Gill says, I'm going to say to you exactly what Moses said I would say to you 3,500 years ago. Then men shall say, because they've forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them forth, out of the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods. And the Lord rooted them out of their land in anger and in wrath and in great indignation and cast them into another land as it is this day. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Friends, God hadn't told us a whole lot of things, but there's certain things he's told us, and he sure told us about that land that's over there today, right now. They're trying to get water on it. Why, there are those that say, well, what sort of a population could it take care of? And Dr. Loudermilk, that was over there for a while, he was an authority in agriculture. He said if this land could get water to it, and agriculture could be revived in this land, he says it would easily take care of 15 to 25 millions of people. May I say to you, I traveled from Jericho up to Jerusalem. Then I went from Jerusalem down back to Jericho. Then I went from Jericho back up to Jerusalem. I want to say to you, friends, you're bound to say, what meaneth? All a judgment on a land of milk and honey. They are out of that land because God said you go into it and live in it on condition. But does that mean now that they'll not go back to it? Does that mean that they fail? No, God made the Palestinian covenant with these people, and here it is. Will you listen to it now? Chapter 30, verse 1, and this is an unconditional covenant. There are no ifs here or perhapses here. Listen to this. 
and it shall come to pass. When all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mine among all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shall return unto the Lord thy God, shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart, with all thy soul, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity, have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. Now, this is an unconditional promise of future blessing. And I want you to notice several things that he says here. There are seven great promises that God makes here, are statements that he makes that are unconditional. The nation shall be plucked off of the land for its unfaithfulness. That's quite obvious here. That took place. And there will be a future repentance of Israel. They are going to come back to God. Now, somebody says, well, it's on the basis of their obedience, is it not? No, my friend, they were dispersed because of disobedience. So in their return, they will be obedient. But this is the order of grace, not law. They are not returned because they are obedient, but they are obedient because of their return. God will bring them back to the land. The regathering of Israel into her own land is the theme, I think, of at least 12 major prophecies in the Old Testament. We're not dealing with those others today, only as we come to them, and we'll call attention when we do. Now, there's a third great statement made here. Their Messiah will return. Notice that. This is very important. And this is the first mention of the return of Christ to the earth that's recorded in Scripture. Now, when we get to the book of Jude, we'll find out Enoch mentioned it, that he was coming back. But that was not recorded in the Old Testament. Verse 3, "...that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity, have compassion on thee, and will return, and gather thee from all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee." That's a remarkable prophecy, you see, and will yet be fulfilled. And it was not until then that the land will be blessed, and there'll be peace in the land. The fourth statement God made is, Israel will be restored to the land. And will you notice that? The Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. That's an unconditional promise of God that rests on no if on their part. God says in the future he brings them back into that land. Now, notice the sixth thing that's mentioned here, and that is Israel's enemies will be judged. Verse 7, And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies, and on them that hate thee, which persecuted thee. And thou shalt return and obey the voice of the Lord. You see, they'll return and then obey the voice of the Lord. That's the order of grace, friend. There's no condition here and do all his commandments which I command thee this day. Well, somebody says, couldn't the return today actually be that? 
could be, but we don't know it, friends. So let's not be dogmatic where we don't know. Now notice the seventh wonderful thing he says, the nation will then receive her full blessing. Notice this, and the Lord thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand, in the fruit of the body, and in the fruit of thy cattle, in the fruit of thy land, for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good, as he rejoiced over thy fathers. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, and if thou return to the Lord God with all thine heart, with all thy soul. Now, may I say to you, this is the condition on which they occupy the land today is obedience to God. There'll be no blessing for them in that land unless they obey God. But when God returns them, he's made a covenant that he will return them someday, and it rests upon no ifs, ands, or perhapses. This is without doubt one of the most remarkable that we have in the entire Word of God. Now, he comes back, and because of this covenant, and you see, they're yet to go through two more dispersions for the land. They'll be returned one time. The third one has not taken place yet, even in our day. Now, he goes on to say in verse 11, "...for this commandment, which I command thee this day, it's not hidden from thee, neither..." Is it far off? It's not in heaven that thou should say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that thou should say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? You see that they can plead no excuse that they do not know it. God has brought it right to them. They can know it. And there is a responsibility to live in a land today where you can hear the gospel. And my friend, you don't have to go to heaven to get salvation. You don't have to cross the ocean to get it. May I say to you, it's right near you. It's as near you as your radio. It's near you as a preacher or a Christian who will give out the Word of God today. And you're responsible. Now, as we said, this is quoted over in the 10th chapter of the epistle to Romans. And there, Paul is quoting from this particular passage we're looking at here in the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy. But Paul does not say that Moses said this, but rather the of faith righteousness is the speaker. And what Paul is doing is saying something there, I think, that's quite wonderful. He's not making a substitution of faith in Romans for the law. The passage in Deuteronomy actually here is prophetic, and it speaks of a day when Israel will turn to God with all their heart and soul, and God will make a new covenant with them. Jeremiah mentions that in the 24th chapter, verse 7. He says, "...I'll give them a heart to know me." that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I'll be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. And then again in the 31st chapter, verse 31, he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, 
which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But it shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I'll put my law in their inward parts, write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, the important thing to note is that what Moses is talking about here, that which is yet future, these people will yet occupy that land because God made a covenant with them. And what does that mean? Friends, that when God makes a covenant, he makes a covenant. In earthly transactions, why, it's a promise or agreement or a contract. And all of Israel's covenants are called eternal, except the Mosaic covenant, which we saw, which is the Ten Commandments. That's temporal. And it was to continue until the coming of the promised seed. But the Abrahamic covenant is called eternal. And the very interesting thing, the Palestinian covenant is called eternal. If you go over to Ezekiel, the 16th chapter, verse 60, it says, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. The covenant that he'd give them, that land, you see. And it rests upon the I will of God. God said it. And friends, that's the thing that makes it true. It's a literal covenant. It's an eternal covenant. And it's a covenant that he made with his nation Israel. He never promised you or me any particular land. But he says in this covenant, I will, I will. And when God says, I will, in this Palestinian covenant, it's either said or expressed 12 times. When God says he'll do it, he'll do it, friends. Now, this looks forward to that time. When they get the land, then their salvation will be there for them. And Christ is the one to institute this new covenant, which is yet future. Righteousness by faith is indeed witnessed to by the law and the prophets. And in the meantime, it's not necessary to ascend to bring Christ down. He's already come. And it's not necessary to raise him from the dead. He's already raised from the dead. And these people had the law for 1,500 years, and they knew it as a matter of rote and ritual, but it had not brought righteousness. Christ had come to them just as the law had. It was not something that was far off. Christ had come among them. He died and rose again in their midst. And this of faith righteousness was available to them as it is to us today. It's been preached down through the ages, and it's come to us today. And the law bore witness to both the righteousness by law and the righteousness by faith. It's not the commandments in Deuteronomy 30, but commandment, the of law righteousness that brought salvation, and it's the only one today. Now, I think that when we look at this passage in Deuteronomy 30, it'll reveal that Paul is not giving an exact quotation, but he's making an application of the passage. I think the statement of Dr. Beats pertinent. This appeal to Moses is a remarkable example of skillful and careful exegesis, you see. And Paul enlarges upon that. Now, in verse 16, he says, "...in that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God." 
to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes, his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply. In other words, their stay in that land, their dwelling in that land, will determine upon their obedience. And he outlined their history. They'd go out of that land when they disobeyed, but he would bring them back, and finally he'll return them, and they'll never, never go out again. Why? Because they're going to obey him? No, because God makes his covenant good, and when they come back, then they will obey. That's exactly what he says to us today. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and when you do, then he talks to you about obedience. Then he says to us, if you love me, keep my commandments. Verse 20, I drop down to it, here in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice. And I want to repeat again, love and obedience is the great theme of Deuteronomy. And that thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is thy life and the length of thy days that thou mayest dwelt in the land. Now, if this was so important for the children of Israel, how important it is for you and me in this day of grace, when we've been given so much more, and since our responsibility is greater today. One of the things that I pray for, I think more devoutly than anything else, is that I may be kept close to him today. Oh, friends, we need to be kept close to the Lord Jesus Christ, how important that is. Now we come, actually, to that which is the, I think we could call it now, the last section of the book of Deuteronomy. It is the fourth and last. Requiem to Moses. We've come now to the end of this man's life. In fact, the Bible up to this point is written by Moses, and a great deal of it's been about him ever since the time they came out of the land of Egypt. For 40 years, he's been concerned with them. We've had his record of 120 years of his life. Now he's getting ready to die. And notice in chapter 31, verse 1, "...and Moses went and spoke these words unto all Israel. And he said unto them, I am a hundred and twenty years old this day. I can no more go out and come in. Also the Lord hath said unto me, Thou shalt not go over this Jordan. Two things about him. He's getting old now. We all get old. Most of us are not going to make it to a hundred and twenty. And we'll do well if we make it to eighty. I get so many letters from people from the age of eighty up to a hundred. However, I didn't realize... There were so many. But that means that when we move up into that area, that we are no longer useful or vital as far as God's program is concerned. And the interesting thing here is Moses is not essential now to go over the Jordan River. In fact, God's made it very clear to him, Moses, you're not going over. You're not going over. And it was because actually of his disobedience, and he'll not be able to go over. He smote that rock twice when he should have spoken to it. And God says you'll not go over. He's not essential. A new leader will take them over. 
And God's made it clear he's not going to be the leader much longer. Now, verse 3, "...the Lord thy God, he will go over before thee, and he will destroy these nations from before thee, and thou shalt possess them. And Joshua, he shall go over before thee, as the Lord hath said." Now, Moses did not pick Joshua. God picked him. He was God's chosen leader to succeed Moses. I do not know this, but I think if it had been left to Moses, that he probably would not have chosen Joshua. We'll see this when we get to Joshua. But actually, Caleb, up to the time of the book of Joshua, seems much more impressive than Joshua and seems to be more natural for him to be the leader. And then, after all, Moses is human. Isn't he apt to pick one of his sons to succeed him? That's the way they did it down in Egypt for the Pharaohs, and he might be inclined to do that. God will pick now Joshua to lead them over the Jordan River. Moses is not essential. That has a great lesson for us, does it not? Well... It tells us that none of us are essential to God's program, friends. I think one of the things today that is a danger of some Christians is that they think that they're essential. I had a pastor say to me, he was getting up in years, he said to me, Brother McGee, I just can't retire. I'm so essential to this work. And that man since then, he died in harness. But very interesting thing is, he wasn't essential, friends, at all. The work prospered more after he died than it ever prospered before. None of us are essential at all. We may think we are. And when the time comes, we should step aside and let God raise up another leader. And that is the thing that Moses is having to do. Now, Moses is encouraging these people. Listen to him in verse 6. He says, "...be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them." He's speaking now of the Amorites and of the enemies, the many tribes that are there in the land. He says, "...be not afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee." And you'll find that Moses again and again is encouraging this new generation to cross over. Why do you think he's encouraging them? Well, he had the experience of leading their fathers, the past generation, the Kadesh Barnea, and he saw them all turn yellow and run back into the wilderness. And Moses now is encouraging this new generation to go on in. God will lead them into the land." And find that he now calls Joshua. Notice this, verse 7. And Moses called unto Joshua, and he said unto him in the sight of all Israel. And this was great, and this was as it should be. Be strong and of a good courage, for thou must go with this people unto the land which the Lord hath sworn unto their fathers to give them, and thou shalt cause them to inherit it. Now he encourages Joshua, and through him encourages the people again. And then he says in verse 8, "...the Lord, he it is that doth go before thee, he will be with thee, he will not fail thee, 
neither forsake thee, fear not, neither be dismayed. That's the thing, actually, Isaiah had to learn. You remember in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, he said, "...in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne." Poor old Isaiah, you know, thought Uzziah's been a good king. He's dead now, and things are going to the bow-wows. Going to be bad, another king will be raised up. And what did he find out when he went into the temple? He found out God was still on the throne, that the real king of Israel and Judah, he wasn't sick. He was still on the throne. He hadn't died at all. And I'm afraid that this idea today God is dead is really very bad information. It's been used before. And here God will go before them into the land. Now, verse 9, And Moses wrote this law, and delivered it unto the priests, the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and unto the elders of the people. Now, you remember at the beginning, we made the statement, it says, Moses spoke these words. And you have there about eight orations in the book of Deuteronomy, but they were written out now, you see. Moses wrote this law. And as we said, this was the beginning of the attack that was made against the Bible. It began in the Grafveldhausen hypothesis that Deuteronomy was written by the priests later on and not written by Moses at all. And the original argument was that writing was not in existence in Moses' day. And friends, it was in existence in Moses' day. In fact, it goes way back of Moses, but that theory is still around, and it's called liberalism, one time called modernism, and of course there was nothing modern about it. Now, even at this time, though they're going to enter the land, you would think that God wouldn't take them in if there was a chance of them failing. And yet he tells Moses here that's exactly what's going to happen. When they get in the land, they're going to turn their backs on God. You know, God knows human nature, knows your being and my being. Why, friends, we'd walk away from him in the next ten minutes if he didn't keep us close to himself. So we find here that the Lord said unto Moses, verse 14, Behold, thy days approach, that thou must die, call Joshua, and present yourselves in the tabernacle of the congregation, that I may give him a charge. And Moses and Joshua went, presented themselves in the tabernacle of the congregation, and the Lord appeared in the tabernacle in a pillar of a cloud. A pillar of the cloud stood over the door of the tabernacle. The Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and thy people will rise up and go a-whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land, whether they go to be among them, and will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day, and I'll forsake them. I'll hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Are not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. Now, I know that there are people say today, Oh, my, we're different. We'll not turn away from God. My friend, I've been a pastor for a long time, 
And an old retired preacher, you know, is always referring back to the past. Did you know that the Lord Jesus said the same thing about the church? He says, when the Son of Man cometh, will he find the faith on the earth? That is, the body of doctrine that he left. May I say, the answer to that is no, he won't. And that's predicted in the New Testament, an apostasy of the church, just like there was of Israel. And you and I are living in it today. And I've seen in my day that which curdles my blood. I've seen church after church that at one time was conservative, would hear nothing but the Word of God, and finally went over really into liberalism took the emphasis off of the Word of God, and before long had plunged and departed from the faith. And there was a time when I believed those churches could never be moved. Well, I suppose I've become a little cynical today. And I have seen man after man who at one time proposed and professed to be sound in the faith, turn away from the things of God. I don't say that you can't do it or that I can't do it. That's the reason I said at the beginning, I pray these days more than anything else, O Lord, keep me close to Thee. Keep me close to Thee in these days. Verse 19, Now therefore write ye this song for you, and teach it the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. Now, music is a very important factor. Someone years ago said, Let me write the music of a nation, and I do not care who writes the laws. And today we are being greatly influenced by music. Any people will. And right now, the music that is getting into our churches is a disgrace, according to this poor preacher. Somebody needs to speak out against it. Many pastors, I think, are afraid to, because they'll just be going against the grain. But my friend, this new music today is not saying anything. This new music only has a beat, that's all. And it's not drawing people closer to the Lord Jesus and all this pious nonsense about this is the way we're going to serve God today or this is the only way we'll be able to reach this generation. May I say to you, you'll reach the generation, all right, with popular music, but you'll never reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't work that way. We read here in verse 24, It came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of the law in a book until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee. The book, you understand, was not a book like we have today, but a scroll. And on that scroll, why, there was the lettering. And at this particular time, it could actually have been a clay tablet. But we believe that even in Moses' day, it was a scroll. Now, he says in verse 28, "...gather unto me all the elders of your tribes, your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to record against them. For I know that after my death ye will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way 
which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days, because ye will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. And Moses spoke in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. Now, before we get into the song here in the 32nd chapter, may I say that this statement that Moses makes here, made it about 3,500 years ago, it's still accurate, still true. And it's been fulfilled quite literally. And it's also true of the entire human family, for God has said that mankind apart from God will utterly corrupt themselves. And all we have to do is look around us today, and we can see that is true. Now we come here to one of the great songs. And this is a song that the nation was to learn. It was sort of like their star-spangled banner, or my country, tis of thee, or God save the king, or any patriotic song. It was one the nation was to know. And these songs have had a great deal to do with every people in every nation. As we indicated last time, someone made the statement, let anyone write the laws of the land and let me write the songs. In other words, the songs have more influence than the laws do. And, of course, if that is true, then we are today in a sad predicament when you listen to these modern songs that are not saying anything that as far as Christians are concerned. And yet the church is falling heads over heels for this type of thing today. May I say that I'm delighted in many senses I'm no longer a pastor because I'm confident that I would not tolerate a great deal of what I hear today that passes as Christian music. It's not even music, let alone Christian. Now, in this song, however, which is a great song, I wish we actually could go into more detail in it than we are permitted to, but we'll do pretty well. This is a five-year course, and we can spend a little time. It's prophetic, by the way, and... The first four verses is the introduction, a call to hear. It says, Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Now, God calls heaven and earth to witness that these are the conditions on which he's putting them into that land. And when he was ready to put them out of the land in judgment, Isaiah has that song. In fact, it really opens the book of Isaiah, and I want to turn to that. It opens the same way. Verse 2 of chapter 1. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. And when God put them in the land, he called heaven and earth to witness the conditions on which he was putting them in the land. Now that he's ready to put them out of the land, over in Isaiah, which, by the way, was at least 700 years later, when he put them out of the land, why, he calls heaven and earth. He's not doing this in a corner. This is not something that he's doing undercover, but that he's justified in putting them out of the land. 
Now he says in verse 2, "...here my doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass." Now, that's the way God's Word is. The psalmist, you remember, says that he'll come down like rain upon the mown grass. I love that statement. A dear saint in Dallas, Texas, many years ago, she said to a pastor when she lost her husband, whom she loved dearly, she said, Now I know, pastor, the meaning of the psalmist when he says he had come down like rain upon the mown grass. Well, he's mowed me down, but he's coming down like rain. Now, that's the way the Word of God should come down into our hearts and into our lives. He says, "...because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God." And how little of the literature of today promotes God, has something good to say about Him. His name is taken in vain today. Now, in verse 4, "...he is the rock." Now, here's rock music, you see. This is a song, and the word rock occurs here. I think I've noticed at least seven or eight times it occurs in this song. This is rock music, therefore. But the rock happens to be God, happens to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the chief cornerstone today. He's the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is he. How this exalts God, and he needs to be exalted today. Then we find here that the nation returns evil for the grace of God in verses 5 and 6. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people? And unwise is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee and established thee? He was, you see, the father of Israel because of creation. He doesn't mention redemption here. It was because he made them. Now, in one sense, God is the father of all mankind in the sense that he created man. But the thing is, when he created man, and Adam was a son of God, but you see, Adam sinned, and after that, They're never called sons of God, that is, Adam's offspring or not. And only those that are the sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is the picture of the human family, a crooked generation. They're foolish people, and that's the picture of mankind today. Now, we have here a wonderful stanza on the goodness of God, Jehovah's goodness, verses 7 through 14. Well, notice there's a very wonderful statement made here in verse 8. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Now, there's a very interesting verse, so much so that you may see that the reason that that land and that people in that land 
even today, are such a sensitive spot. Why? Because the entire world we live in is regulated by that land and that people. That is God's earthly purpose, you see. This is a very wonderful passage of Scripture. And then you have here, "...he found him in a desert land, in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, as an eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them, beareth them on her wings." So the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. I trust that you have my book on eagle's wings, because in that I deal with this verse of Scripture. One of the things that the eagle does to teach its young ones to fly is to push them off of that high cliff where the nest is. And then when the little one begins to struggle and fly, and if he doesn't make it, That mother eagle or the father eagle, for that matter, they just come right up and under with their strong wings and bear them up. Now, God says that's what he does for those that are his own. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture, Jehovah's goodness. Then you have the apostasy of the nation, verses 15 to 18. Notice what it says, but Jeshurun, that's Israel, of course, Israel waxed fat and kicked. What a picture that is of this affluent society that you and I live in today. Israel waxed fat and kicked. What a bunch of complainers we have in this country today. And Christians join in with it. We've never had it so good. He says, Thou art waxen fat. Thou art grown thick. That means you're getting fat, my beloved. Thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God which made him, and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. This is rock song, you see, rock music. But the rock is our Savior. He's our salvation. It's our God. Now, verse 18, of the rock that begat thee, thou art unmindful, and hast forgotten God that formed thee. This is the beginning of the God is dead movement. The point is that God's not dead, but these people are dead in trespasses and sins. It's the apostasy. Then you have the judgment of God upon them, verses 19 through 25. God says, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are very froward generation, children in whom is no faith. God says, what I'll do is, I'll hide myself from them. I will not manifest myself under them at all. And we wonder today, friends, if that's not where we've come in our land. There's so many today. A very godly man said to me some time ago, he said, why, I pray that God will move on the scene today. And he doesn't seem to move on the scene. Well, he doesn't, by the way. Think he's hiding himself from us, my friends. Then in verses 26 to 42, you have the longing of God for his people. God says, I'll scatter them into corners. I'll do that. Were it not, he says, that I feared the wrath of the enemy. I don't want them to hurt my people or destroy them, lest their adversaries should behave themselves strangely, and lest they should say, Our hand is high 
and the Lord hath not done all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, neither is there any understanding in them. And then verse 30, how should one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight? Except their rock had sold them, and the Lord had shut them up. For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies, themselves being judges. What a picture that we have here that's given to us. God has a longing for these people, and he wants to redeem them. He wants to save them. Now we come to the last stanza of the song, "...the nations of the world..." are blessed with Israel. That's the last two verses. Very important to see this, by the way. Rejoice, all ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. And Moses came and spake all the words of this song in the ears of the people. He and Hoshea, Joshua, the son of Nun. And Moses made an end of speaking all these words to all Israel. Actually, the law is revealed here. Moses, as the law, cannot enter the land. Legalism actually is a hindrance. Law is a revealer, not a remover of sin. And he said unto them, verse 46, "...set your hearts unto all the words..." which I testify among you this day. And then he goes on to say, And the Lord spake unto Moses that self same day, saying, that's verse 48, now 49, Get thee up unto this mountain, Abarim, unto Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, that is over against Jericho. Behold the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel for a possession, and die in the mount, whether thou goest up and be gathered unto thy people, as Aaron thy brother died in Mount Hor, was gathered unto his people, because ye trespassed against me among the children of Israel, the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because ye sanctified me not in the midst of the children of Israel. Yet thou shalt see the land before thee, but thou shalt not go thither unto the land which I give, the children of Israel. Moses, the representative of the law, the lawgiver himself cannot enter the land because law cannot save us, friends, and it'll never bring us into the place of blessing. Now we have chapter 33. Moses gathers the tribes around him and blesses all of the tribes. And I'm not going to have time to go into that at all other than to call attention to it. We read here, chapter 33, verse 1, "...and this is the blessing wherewith Moses the man of God blessed the children of Israel before his death." And he began with Reuben, he said, verse 6, "...let Reuben live and not die, and let not his men be few." Then he keeps going all around, and we find verse 8, "...and of Levi said, let thy thummim and thy urim be with the Holy One whom thou didst prove at Massa, with whom thou didst strive at the waters of Meribah. The nation will be blessed through Levi. And you find as you go on down that Joseph would be a great blessing to his brethren. 
Ephraim and Manasseh, two tribes, you see. And we find here as you go through this passage that that which was said concerning these different tribes came true. Very interesting one is verse 24. And of Asher, he said, "...let Asher be blessed with children. Let him be acceptable to his brethren. Let him dip his foot in oil." It's quite interesting that the oil pipeline that came through that land years ago came in through the tribe of Asher. In fact, it came that into the northern part of the kingdom. And probably again that pipeline will be open. And then verse 29, "...happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people, saved by the Lord, the shield of thy help, and who is the sword of thy excellency, and thine enemies." shall be found liars under thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. Oh, if these people had only obeyed God. Now you have at verse 5 the death of Moses. The question arises, did Moses write his own death? He could have. been a very simple thing. I've had several funerals of individuals where they wrote out the entire funeral service, told all about it, and they surely did it before they died. But a great many believe that this is part of the book of Joshua. After all, there was not the book divisions that we have today. In the beginning, there were scrolls, and one scroll was just put right on top of another so that the break here could be explained that way. But we read now verse 5, "...so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord." And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor. But no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. And you ask me why? Well, because of the fact that Moses is to be raised and brought into that land and will appear with the Lord Jesus Christ. The law couldn't bring him in, but the Lord Jesus brought him into the land. And we find here that The children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days, so the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And we'll pick up actually there for the book of Joshua next time.